Now, I bring this up because Workday uses Adobe's uh, OCR technology to parse data. So when you are uploading your resume and you have like cute colors and images and icons, the OCR can't read that. It doesn't know what that is. It's not a human. So in terms of parsing data, you're absolutely right, Dave. Having a plain text resume makes a ton of sense. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we lift the curtain on the hiring process and talk to recruiters and hiring managers to hear about what goes on in the hiring process. This week, we are with Farah Shargi, who is a technical recruiter and has worked at some incredible companies like the New York Times, Google, TikTok, and has been part of growing very big teams very quickly. And she brings a unique perspective because she used to be a software engineer. So she is a technical recruiter that can go deep on technical topics. We cover all sorts of cool things. We talk about job descriptions, the process of how JDs are written. We go particularly deep on Google's process, which is world-class and one of a kind. Then we talk about the technologies, again, fairly technical given her background on ATSs and text parsing. And then we talk about the areas that are most important on resumes and, and what we're looking for in hard skills. And then broadly, you know, how do these things apply at big tech companies? It's an awesome episode. Farah gives a ton of really valuable insights, and I hope you have as much fun listening to it and it's as insightful for you as it was for me. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week we are with Farah Shargi, who honestly I've been sort of quietly following on TikTok for a while since I first got on there maybe 18 months ago and it's probably one of my favorite sort of career talkers. It's spicy, it's funny, and it's really, really good content. So I'm super excited to have Farah on the show, but better for you to introduce yourself than me going on and on about it. I don't know, Dave. I mean, you sound like a really great hype man. So I think maybe you should just keep going on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so thank you for that kind introduction. Hi, everyone. I'm Farah Shargi. I am a technical recruiter based in San Francisco. My origin story is that um, my undergraduate degree is in computer science. So studied and became an engineer. Did that for a little bit, pivoted and worked in finance for a decade, and then ended up pivoting and working in recruitment. So I've been in the recruiting field officially for seven years, and I've worked at some pretty cool companies. I've worked at uh, Google, Lyft, Uber, TikTok, The New York Times, and most recently at a dating app in San Francisco. Wow, that's like the top 10, you know, of like companies you'd want to have on your resume. So that's amazing. I'm Super pumped to have you on the show. All right. So, you know, one pattern I see there, kind of like to set the context for listeners, is you do bring the lens of like sort of larger organizations. Recruiting is very different in different sort of sized companies. So for anyone listening, a lot of this, you know, if you're applying to a 10-person startup, some of these things may not be as applicable or we'll, we'll call out otherwise. You know, at companies of this scale with this kind of brand, I do think aspects of large applicant pools are super relevant. And I'd love for people to get a sense of that because I do think a lot of the advice that is out there is like, how do you stand out from the crowd? And you know, with little companies, that's not as tricky, but at a company of that caliber, uh, for, with those kinds of positions that they post, engineers, highly coveted, highly paid, I would imagine you're talking hundreds of applicants plus the outbound that you all are doing. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the kind of hiring process that you've seen like most commonly happen? Right. I mean, the hiring process always starts with the relationship between the hiring manager and the recruiter. And obviously every company has their own way of deciding what the hiring process actually should look like. And some of that is predicated upon, you know, their own rules that they make up for the protection of the company to make sure that we're ensuring fairness amongst all employee candidates and employees, et cetera. Because we also have to think about internal employees because they're also candidates as well. It's not just people from the outside. It's also internally when you're trying to move around. And so when a recruiter like myself works with a new hiring manager, I have to establish that relationship. So first things first, I have to establish my credibility to really let them know that, yes, I am an expert in this field. I'd like to learn more about what it is you know that you're doing. What are your needs? What's going on with your team? Tell me about what's going on 
you know, in the next quarter, next six months, next year, how do you see your team growing? So all of these things are very important to me as a recruiter to have a baseline understanding because it actually does help me with finding the right candidates and also screening the right candidates. And so along this process, I'm having, um, it's a meeting that we call an intake meeting. So I have that intake meeting. You know, usually I have- I love jargon. Yeah, I love jargon. (laughs) I want to give people like all the jargon. Right. So it's it's an intake meeting. So in the intake meeting, I have a form that I will fill out. Um, If the company supplies one to me, then I'll use theirs. If not, I just make one of my own. Again, just understanding what's going on. And if they've had- Can you talk about like some of the stuff that's on that form, like super specifically? Yeah. So I'm definitely asking about headcount because at larger organizations, headcount is not determined by recruiting. There are other organizations that um, within the company that are making those decisions, and it usually involves finance. Well, it always involves finance. What am I saying? It's always it's always about the money, money. Someone wants to go deep on that process. We went pretty deep into it with Morgan Sanner. We talked about workforce planning, finance, how headcounts are set, so all that pre stuff. And check out that episode if you want to hear about it. Yeah, I actually listened to it. It was a great episode. And so by the time all of that gets approved, then it comes into my hands. And what I know is. You know, when it comes to a recruiter's metrics and how we're measured on our success, it's how many offers do we extend to candidates and how many of them actually accept and start the job. Those are things that we are measured on. I don't think people realize like and and the type of recruiter that I am, I'm known as a corporate or internal recruiter. I'm not an agency recruiter. So agency recruiters are people who work at recruiting agencies and they make commission off of placements. So let's say you're a job seeker and a an agency recruiter places you in a role, they're going to make a commission off of your base salary. It can be anywhere between like 10 to 20, even 25% of that. It doesn't take away from the money you make, but that's what they earn in a commission. Whereas someone like myself is a salaried employee and my bonuses are based on things like offer accepts and offer extends. So again, it just, it depends on the company, but I don't, I don't earn any commission off of a placement. And I tell candidates all the time when I'm extending them offers, like, I genuinely don't care how much money you make. And they they get kind of put off by that. And I said, no, that's actually a good thing. What I care most about are building teams within my company and making sure that when you start your job, you know you got the best offer possible. Because if if you know that, you're going to be a happy employee. You're going to start that first day. You're going to be super happy. The hiring manager is going to be happy because you're happy. Everybody wins. It's a win-win here. So on the intake form, I need to know things like headcount, what are the minimum qualifications that this person needs to have in order to for you to actually entertain them? So there's the minimum qualifications, which is slightly different than, um, let's say, I think you you talked to Kristen Fife as well. There was a podcast episode that was great about OFCCP. So that's just as, as an aside from that. Now, if I am working at a company where that is the case, then yes, I do actually need to know those minimum qualifications because we have to put that in the job description. What's some of the stuff that's on there are like we, I mean, you've probably recruited for various functions. I want to get into that separately. Let's, let's, let's pin them against each other. <laughs> I want to bait you into saying that engineers are the hardest to recruit for. <laughs> like what, I'll answer that in a way that's fair to everybody, but you'll like it. You'll like it. <laughs> but like in the minimum requirements, are we looking at like hard skills, soft skills, more? It's like pretty clear hard skills typically. Right. Because I mean, how do you measure good communication and what does that mean? Do they take a test? No, we can't really measure that. So things like years of experience uh, within a specific field or fields, like those should be part of the minimum qualifications. And then from there, we can talk about the preferred qualifications. And then outside of that, I will ask the hiring manager, if you were to poach somebody from another company, which companies should I poach from and what type of team? Because I, as a recruiter, I'm responsible for the inbound candidates and also any candidates that I go out and outsource and find, let's say, on LinkedIn Recruiter or other platforms where I'm I'm finding people. So I want to know. So, for example, when I worked at Google, I supported hiring for Google X, which is the moonshot factory. And that's where they do all the cool things like Google Glass. And then they also create their consumer hardware products. And I was hiring for their hardware reliability team. It's different from software reliability, so hardware reliability. There is one university in the U.S., University of Maryland, that has a reliability program. 
and I thought that was true at the time. I don't know now. This was, you know, like six years ago. So I knew when I was screening candidates, if they had an undergraduate or, or graduate degree from that university, I knew this person would definitely be a shoe in for the position that I was hiring for. Okay, so that background becomes super valuable. And this is one of the things about companies. I know that it, right, if you didn't get like one of these like lottery tickets and work at one of these companies, but it also, we can talk about this later. I mean, it is, there are just like, they work as proxies. It's like right now we're looking to hire a backend engineer and our stack is Ruby on Rails. And so I am in LinkedIn Recruiter filtering by companies that I know are on a Rails stack because sometimes candidates don't put it as a skill. And so I need to do everything I can to turn over every rock to find people. So if you worked at Shopify that has a you know reputation or 37 signals or Basecamp because they're Rails shops, it's like, okay, well then these backend engineers who don't have Rails in their profile, probably no Rails. Probably. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing too. I think um, when it comes to software engineering, I know you want me to say that like hiring engineers is the hardest thing ever. I would say uh, software is the most challenging but that's like a, that's like a story for another day. I'll, or maybe I'll just tell it. And- oh, not that it's the hardest. I feel like they're the hardest to serve in a recruiting capacity. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, they're they're they are, in my opinion, they are the artists of the engineering world because in computer science there is an element of creativity that needs to be there. And so I find that the best engineer, software engineers, are the ones who are more creative. And with that creativity comes eccentricity. And so with that eccentricity, it can make, like you said, it's it's more difficult to support. That's why I love recruiting hardware engineers. To me, they're just like, they're very stable. There's, there's just kind of like a duration that comes with hardware. This is like a way of working. This yeah, sort of and it makes sense. Comfortability. Right, if you don't, exactly. Like if you're building a house, if you don't lay down the concrete, the foundation, you can't build the rest of the house, right? Whereas in software engineering, like gravity doesn't matter as much, right? The constraints are less. All right, so that's the process at a high level, you do the intake, you hear all the things. Like I know when I was at WeWork and I would work with recruiters, you know, I would say things like, it would be great if when we hire salespeople, they're already trained on salesforce.com. And it seems trivial. It's like, oh, I could learn HubSpot. But all those things, especially at a high growth situation, is just, it slows you down. And you could have a great L&D department and you can absolutely invest in training. But I, I don't think people realize how important it is to hiring managers in particular that people can come in, at least the perception of it, that can come in and hit the ground running. I think that's kind of like the utopian thing that everyone is sort of striving for in hiring. That's why I get very frustrated with social media and TikToks where people say, oh, just apply for any job. It's okay if you don't meet all the requirements. Yes, you don't have to meet necessarily all of the requirements, but take a step back when you're reading a job description and reverse engineer, what does this person need and why? Because like you said, most companies are not going to invest a month, two months, three months in your education to get you ramped up on a tool. Instead, they'd rather go and find a candidate who has the the relevant experience in order for them to be able to hit the ground running. That's very true. And that's also part of the intake meeting is uh, when I'm meeting with hiring managers, I'm asking them what tools you know do they need to have? Where's there some flexibility? If I, if I find someone who's a great fit for all of these other things, but they don't necessarily have the experience in XYZ, then the hiring manager will either say, yeah, that's fine. We can train them or no, we can't. This is absolutely a have to have. Something else that I also do in the intake meeting is I discuss hiring process. So what does the process look like from the time I speak to the candidate until I make an offer? What questions do they, the, does the hiring manager want me to screen for? So because I'm a technical recruiter, I'm capable of asking technical questions and understanding those answers. And based on those answers, I can make a determination. And again, that's because of my years of experience. Some recruiters do have that knowledge, some don't. So if a recruiter says to you, like after your interview and they go, um, let me share these notes with my hiring manager and then I'll get back to you. It's because that recruiter d- doesn't have the green light to be able to make that decision. And it could be because they themselves don't have the confidence or the hiring manager says, no, I'd rather just read those answers and then I'll make that, the decision to move them forward or not. And then when we're deciding what the process looks like, it's okay. Like, let's say hiring manager does the first phone screen, another interview does a second one, and then we're building out the final interview panel. And when we build out those final interview panels, 
each interviewer has a specific niche that they're wanting to cover. So I know every interview, like someone's going to ask you the question, tell me about yourself. That's fine. We need to make sure that that's an answer that's going to be applicable to all. But each interviewer is going to specialize in something. So for example, at Google, instead of asking those wackadoodle questions of like, if you had a 1964 VW Beetle that was yellow and you stick it on the moon, how many ping pong balls could you fit in and like send it to Mars? They're not going to ask that. (laughs) And instead, um, they've replaced it with the uh, GCA interview, which stands for General Cognitive Ability Interview. And all they want to know is how you solve problems. That's what they're assessing for. So that's one example. And then let's say in another example, they just want to understand your background and your experience. Another one could be a behavioral interview process and so on. And are those assigned like in advance? Like you're the GCA interview, you're the technical, you're the, got it. Correct. And so usually it's the hiring manager that will go to the interviewers and say, okay, I'm hiring for this position. Sam over here is going to screen for this. You know, Ollie over here is going to screen for this, et cetera, et cetera. And so everyone understands, you know, what their responsibility is because there have been times when I've, when we've interviewed candidates and an interviewer just decides, you know what? No, I'm not, I'm going to interview and just ask whatever questions I want. And then I, as the recruiter, when we have to debrief. So after an interview, all of the interviewers and the hiring manager and the recruiter get together in a room. And we discuss, you know, notes from the interview. And so usually we start with a vote, you know, yes or no's. Sometimes we do it with thumbs, virtual thumbs. And then we go around the room. I always start with the no's and then move to the yeses because I don't want the yeses to taint the no's. I'd rather it go the other way around. And then from there, you know, we'll we'll talk about it. And there have been times where I've had to put interviewers on the spot and it's very uncomfortable for them. It's very uncomfortable for me. Because they didn't follow instructions. Oh, yeah, that makes it tricky. And so you're like, well, we needed to assess the the candidate on this. Why didn't you talk about it? And then they have no answer because they they were clearly instructed. It doesn't happen too, too often, but it's usually during the beginning of a hiring process when you see that. And so that's also why it can sometimes take time for a hire to happen because you're calibrating those interviewers. So getting them up to speed. Whose decision... Is it ultimately to make the offer like you're going to quarterbacking or in football season? So I can, you know, but you're quarterbacking the process. And is it like a consensus thing? Is that like, hey, we need at least X percentage at a company policy thing or the hiring manager can decide unilaterally? Like, how do you see that usually shake out? It depends on the company. So Google has a hiring committee. And so as a as a candidate, it's important to ask your recruiter, what does the hiring process look like from now until the offer is made to a candidate? And then ask them about the on-site interview and ask them, okay, how is a hiring decision made? Because it's either going to be made by an outside hiring committee like it is at Google. And in that process, all interviewers submit feedback to a separate committee. The committee will read the answers and make a decision. The hiring manager is not involved in that process. Neither are the interviewers. And so it's the hiring committee with the recruiters. And the hiring committee is discussing it amongst themselves. Recruiters have little to no input. Instead, what we do is we put the hiring manager on standby in case we need to um, patch them into the meeting. If hiring committee has a question for the hiring manager because they need clarification, then they'll say, hey, can we bring in so-and-so? Okay, great. So we patch them in. Hiring manager asks, I'm sorry, uh, hiring committee asks the manager whatever questions, and then the hiring manager leaves, and then they continue with the discussion. So they have absolutely no say-so in who gets hired or not. And that can be a very frustrating process, which is why Google's hiring process takes so long. So if people are applying to Google, just know that it is going to be a longer process. So you have to factor that into your time in which you're looking to get a job. Is their process quite unique or have you seen other companies operate in a similar way? Because I'd love to give people a view of, uh, you know, because Google, I feel like, is in the rarest of error when it comes to hiring and their scrutiny. And, you know, Laszlo Bozak, Bodak was there and he like, you know, did like an incredible process with HR. You got his book on the shelf. Um so that, you know, they, I just feel like they're a company that's really talked about their process or are there others that are maybe more common or are, have more people adopted kind of their philosophies? That's a good question. I would say Google's is the most unique and there are companies who've tried to adopt it. Lyft tried to adopt it. 
I don't know if they are if they ended up adopting it or if they're successful with it, but it depends. I would say the 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 more general approach is in you know instead of a hiring committee, all of the interviewers get together with the recruiter and then they discuss you know like I said earlier they talk about feedback and then they they make a decision. So let's say you're a candidate and the overwhelming feedback it was negative. The hiring manager cannot overrule that decision because they still have to go to the HR business partner afterwards if they say, yes, I want to make an offer. The HR business partner is going to look at the interview feedback and go, why are you making an offer to this person? They clearly failed their interview. Like, we're not going to support this. You're not hiring this person. Also, a hiring manager has to also think about their internal reputation. What if they hired somebody that was an overwhelming no, they will lose the respect of their team. And then those people will end up leaving. You know, I've, I've never seen that happen. But I have seen hiring managers say, Farah, I really, really want to hire this person. Would like, help. Like, what can I do? And when that happens, that's when I intervene because, and not intervene, it's just before a candidate goes on site to an interview, I'm prepping them for their interviews. So for anyone listening, if you're in an on-site interview and you're kind of freaking out and you're like, oh, I'm not sure what's going to happen, or you want additional prep, ask the recruiter. Can you give me 15 minutes of your time to help me prepare for this interview? I've gotten in the habit of telling candidates, I promise I want you to succeed at this. Like, I don't want to keep interviewing. I want this process to end. I want you to crush it. Like, tell me whatever I can do to help you be successful. And I I think people forget, like, the recruiter is not your adversary. The interviewer is not your adversary. Neither is the hiring manager. If people are giving you their time, they want to hire you. And for me, I mean, I'll, I'll be very bluntly honest. When I was at Uber, I was hiring manufacturing engineers. And I poached a few folks from Tesla because of this like one particular thing that we were hiring for. And I remember prepping a candidate. And, and this was for the jump organization, the bikes and scooters team. And I asked, have you ridden one of the bikes? He said, no. I said, okay, before your interview, even if it's like <laughs> 30 minutes before, come early. We have bikes on the premise. Go look at the bike and pay attention to these things. So I, I gave him all of this prep and I go find the weaknesses, do this and that, whatever. Then, you know, so the interview process, we debrief. And it was so funny because I remember the head of reliability was sitting across from me at the table and I'm taking the notes and somebody else was facilitating the, the debrief. And uh, they're like, yeah, we were really impressed that he knew this and knew that. La, la. And that guy shot me a look and I just like, like, perked up. And then I like looked the other way and I was like, do, 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 do. <laughs> there's no way he would have known that. I'm like, mm, I didn't a say coincidence. all right. So I think we've gone deep on the process. We could keep going and I think fill the whole hour with this, but there's so many insights that you have to share that I want to move us on. So I guess j- just to wrap that up. So you do the intake, the JD gets online. Let's talk about that. I mean, do you do you get involved in helping shape the JD, give some feedback on and job description? Sorry, I jargon. And just, you know, the kind of what's the expedited version? Again, we go into it very nitty-gritty detail with Morgan. Yeah, so how's that job get online at these bigger companies? So it depends on the company. So a company like Google has a separate group that you have to send the job description to because they have to audit every job description that goes out. And I think people forget that part of the reason why job descriptions, let's say at Google, are written in a way that you go, you know what? I feel like I could do any of these jobs, (laughs) right? And you're like, wait, I could be an infrastructure engineer based on my background. Like, why can't I do this? The reason why those job descriptions are written the way they are is because the press will go to a company's careers page and reverse engineer what a company is doing based on the teams they're hiring for. So they have that foresight of, oh, they're hiring gaming engineers. Oh, they must be working on a gaming platform, right? But most of the time, job descriptions are written by the hiring manager. And I'll be very, again, behind the scenes, I will take a hiring manager's job description, take a couple of sentences out of it, and just do a quick Google search to see if they copied it from another public job description. That has happened multiple times. It's one of my dream features for Teal is what is the originality of this JD? Because we have so many. And, and then like, I want to do like the genealogy. It was like, what was the first one that was copy pasted? <laughs> was it like steal like an artist? I think I have that. Yeah, the Austin Cleon book. It's actually behind me too. But it's like, they steal like an artist and that's fair and that's fine as long as it fits. 
the, you know, for the job that they're hiring for, it's fine. But yeah, usually the hiring manager will send it over. If there's a few tweaks here and there, I'll make some adjustments and then uh, post it myself. Now let's talk about how candidates get into the pipeline. So the position's filled. Let's uh, let's pick one. I mean, what would be like a hardware engineer? This one would just to give it a label. And so now the position's online. And I'd be curious to hear like, what's your typical expectation to fill it? Like we talk in months, weeks, and how does that pipeline start to get filled up? So at a larger company, um, I've looked at time to fill, and and these are these are metrics that all recruiters look at at these larger companies. Is if this hiring manager has a track record of hiring at the company, I'm able to pull that data. From that data, I can determine one, what was the typical time to hire, and then two, are there any barriers of time to hire? If that's the case, I also need to address that in the intake meeting. I have done that with hiring managers in the past and said, look, for example, I had one global director who said, I have to interview every single candidate that comes through, no matter the leveling. And I'm like, you're like booked out one to two months out. This is why you're not able to build your team because it's taking like almost a month for you to interview these candidates. So we had to work through that. Usually time to hire is around three months at these larger companies from the time we have the intake meeting with the hiring manager until we extend an offer. And again, that reason why is you got to meet with the hiring manager. You've got to meet with if you're going to, like, for example, if I'm being assigned a sourcer, so sourcers are people who go and source candidates outside, then I need to have meetings with the sourcing team, with the sourcers themselves. And sometimes I'll include them in those intake meetings as well. I need to introduce them to the hiring manager and the interviewers. I need to meet with the interviewers and the hiring managers. Those things actually take some time. And so while a job is being posted, those are things that are also going on behind the scenes, which is why when you apply for a job and let's say you know you're a shoe in it might take two weeks or three weeks to get a call back. That's okay. It's perfectly normal. And then from there, we're, we're sending candidates through the pipeline. I would say... You know, a good ratio is like 15 to one is like kind of average. So like 10 to one, like for every 15 candidates, we should have one offer extended. So as a recruiter, I'm trying to lower that number as much as I possibly can. Like one to one would be amazing, <laughs> but that's that's not realistic and that's probably not going to happen. What's a typical ratio of inbound to outbound? Again, it could, you know, if it's a super rare position and these people are never applying online, it's probably 100% outbound. But, you know, maybe for a more mid to junior level position, you know, that could expect some outbound, like what, at least like what kind of targets did you set for yourself or see set for inbound and outbound? I would say for a mid-level junior candidate, it would be more inbound than outbound. The higher up you go in the in the food chain and the more the more things that you tack on, right? To something, you know, it's going to anchor it down and it's going to kind of bog down the the process. Um, I would say it's about like more inbound to outbound. So I would probably give it like 60 inbound to 40% outbound. Because again, the barrier to entry to apply for these jobs is quite low unless you're applying through Workday. Then <laughs> the Workday ATS is like, and I have worked with Workday. I've worked with a lot of ATS systems. Um, it's like a whole nother conversation to have. But People don't want to apply through Workday, which actually, if you're a job seeker, that's a good hack. Apply to jobs that are using Workday as their applicant tracking system because other people are just not going to apply. Fun fact, I made 20 versions of the same resume this weekend to see what would intake into Workday the easiest. Uh, and I'm sort of working through it, but I think what I'm going to recommend to people is have two versions. One that's like almost like a JSON equivalent. So it's a JavaScript thing. I, I know Farah gets it. Of like your resume that you upload. It's like super ugly just for parsing. Then you delete it and then have another one that you upload, upload that like will be in the nice like PDF preview. So I'll, fun fact, when I worked at the New York Times, we met with Workday so we can optimize the applicant tracking system. Now, part of my background is my father was a university professor. He has a PhD in digital imaging and signal processing. And his specialty was the ability to read text with an image and video. So he passed some of that knowledge on to me. So I was able to do some of that work. And, and I also interned where he worked at uh, when I was at university. I, I interned at Siemens in their postal automation division. So all of those postal automation machines have a camera on them. It's called an OCR. 
stands for optical character recognition. And so when male pieces go through those machines, they get sorted. And every male piece that gets that goes through the OCR captures an image. So it's capturing the the address on there. The, ca- the camera then takes that, that image, finds the text, reads the text, and then sorts it. Now, I bring this up because Workday uses Adobe's uh, OCR technology to parse data. So when you are uploading your resume and you have like cute colors and images and icons, the OCR can't read that. It doesn't know what that is. It's not a human. So in terms of parsing data, you're absolutely right, Dave. Like having a plain text resume makes a ton of sense in respect to, you know, parsing data into tools like WordPress. So PDF can be text, right? So it doesn't need to be OCR'd if it's like baseline raster, right? Because all that is like images, which are pixels. We're going to get technical here, folks. So then need to be character recognized from pixels to editable text. And that's one of the things I was testing this weekend. It was like, do you think because text ordering is complicated in, in resumes, do they rasterize it and then put it through an OCR? Or do they go, if it's detectable text, straight from PDF to text? Ah, it's a good question. I would I don't think it rasterizes, but I haven't looked into the OCR in quite a few years, if I'm being fair. Oh, you know what? I can I think I can answer that. Because one of the tests I did was I labeled, so I did company colon company name, job title colon company name. I don't think it actually used that information, but I thought if I would try I was trying to up the accuracy. I got it to hundred percent. So and I was just doing companies. I would do a company, a position, a date range, and then some text about it, bullets. And in one of them, I made the labels white text. Not trying to do the stupid white text hack, but I was like, will it pick it up? What I didn't do was include white text in one of the positions as text that I knew it had captured before. So I'll I'll turn the bullets into white text to see if it ingests them because I knew that it identified them and it knew where they belonged. So I'll do that test. But I think it was picking up the text first and then I'll do a raster test and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, if you have a PDF with white font on a white background, you should still be able to put your mouse over it and highlight it. So in that case, it should be able to pick it up. But then again, even if you're doing that, it just makes the parse data look super, super weird. <laughs> no, it looks super weird. But I was wondering if it, if it was rasterizing it, then it wouldn't have gotten it because it would have been in white pixels. And then, But if it stayed text. So, all right, TBD on that one. Uh, maybe I'll have to do like a separate deep dive podcast on just my findings on this little. But anyways, that's the kind of things I do on the weekend. So let's talk about this. So if in a position like that, it is 60% inbound. I'd love to hear about that process now. And for inbound is people that applied, you know, and they could apply lots of different places. They could use the easy apply. They could apply directly on the company website. They could apply through a job board. But anyways, the jobs are out there and people apply. And then we'll talk about the outbound process. But yeah, what's your your process for reviewing? And, and like, how long does like the inbound process take? First thing I want the listeners to understand is that an applicant tracking system is a tracking system. It is not a decision-making system. All of this stuff out there that's saying, get you can get past the AI bots. I mean, insert whatever the new thing is, right? Like people have been saying this for years. That is nonsense. That is not true. <laughs> like That just does not happen in applicant tracking systems. The way it looks, and I wish I had a visual to show you, it's basically either first in, first out, or last in, first out. You're basically putting resumes on a stack. It's kind of like when you go to a cafeteria and they have a stack of trays and you got to pull the first tray off to go get your food. That's what it is for us. So we can see a list of names. Okay, here are the applicants. Great. Let's start from the top. All right, let's start from the top and we go. So as a recruiter, my process is literally shut off all notifications, put on my headphones, zone out to some music and let's start screening resumes and let's start going through them. Because once you get into a zone, it's very easy to be able to go through them. And, you know, when you're reading like 500 resumes a week, that can be very straining on the eyes. And so when people say, well, recruiters should spend more than five seconds on a resume. Well, they should. They do not have the ability to do that. That is exhausting. And that would take up far too much of our time. So as a 
job seeker, it's really important that you highlight, again, those minimum qualifications and the keywords that a recruiter would be searching for to find you. Let me find you. Help me hire you. Make my job easier. And the other thing, too, that is one of my personal pet peeves are the Canva resumes. I will not, <laughs> like, look, Canva is a great, I subscribe to Canva. It's wonderful as a tool, but not for resume writing because there's so many issues, right? It's colorful and people think that, oh, but if I have colors on my resume, that'll help me stand out. Not in the way that you think. If I'm the recruiter and I'm looking at your resume and I see, you know, blue and purple or whatever the colors are, I don't care. I'm actually ignoring it. It does not matter to me. I find it annoying because it actually hurts my eyes. You're not ignoring the resume. You're ignoring those attributes of the resume. Correct. Yes, exactly. Because I'm still I'm still reading the resume and consuming the text, but you know, using whatever cute font or whatever clip art is on there, I just I genuinely do not care. I just care about the content of what you're writing. So I want to put that out there that people think that they're marketing themselves by having a beautiful resume. That's not the best, that's not the best approach. Like what I'm thinking about here is is a reframing of it's not that a, res- a recruiter looks for six seconds, is and it also is in stages. It, you know, these these make for great sound bites, but I think people and I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to put words in recruiters' mouths, but I definitely give myself like a time budget for my first decision. And I don't know, maybe there's like let's call it like four decisions. My first is like, all right, am I going to read just like super quick? And that that is, I think, like five six seconds. Then there's like the okay, am I going to give myself the 20 second budget. And now I'm going a little deeper. Okay. I'm going to give myself like the 60 second budget, but it's like, you're going through these kind of mental gates and you got to make it easy. And so like, if it's really, really hard, you've expended my five second budget and I'm, that's it. Like you wasted my time on the, like what could have been more important. Totally. Well, and also, you know, once you've made it past the the five or six seconds, uh, that's when I will either say yes or reject. Now, if I say yes, what I use, the way my process works is I will put them kind of in a yes pile and then I'll spend more time. I want to get through the resumes as quickly as possible. Then I can invest a little more time and then be a bit more thoughtful about, okay, is this person actually going to be a fit for this position? And then I'll do another round of, okay, yes or no. Yeah, I do that sometimes, kind of depending on how I'm feeling. I'll just like, all right, I'm just going to do my quick pass. And then look, I think another thing of that people don't realize is unfortunately there's a massive signal to noise ratio problem because you do the hard work, you make your resume tailored, but unfortunately there are a lot of people that don't and that mass apply and they are objectively unqualified. So I also think this skews the averages. There are folks that literally take one second. Like I'm applying for a software engineering position and this person was a customer support rep. And there's not a single word that says engineering and they apply. And that's like one more resume I need to look at because they just went to our company website and applied to every single open position. I mean, look, I get it. You got to try, you never know, but it does like hurt the collective that that happens. And it does pull on the limited amount of time that we have to do this work. Right. And then I, I hear from job seekers, I've applied for 200, 300 jobs this month. And they're somebody who's, let's say, mid-tier in their career. And I think, how were you able to find 300 jobs in, let's say, if you were looking for an on-site job? Like that to me seems impossible. So clearly they're doing a little bit of throwing spaghetti on the wall. And as a job seeker, you are better off creating a resume that is more tailored and focused to the job and job family that you are applying to. It will be a better investment of your time. And I think people, you know, like you said, when they mass apply, they're like, well, it just takes a few seconds for me to mass apply. And I'd rather just do that than it'll just like give me more opportunities. And they're not realizing the damage that they're actually doing to themselves. Because let's say you apply to 20 jobs at Uber, that will stay in the system. As a recruiter, I can see that. And hiring managers can see that too. I have actually had to make excuses for candidates who have done that, where a hiring manager will say, oh, I see they applied to 10 jobs. And I'll say, you know, uh, like, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, sometimes candidates think that they have to apply to a bunch of jobs just to get noticed by a recruiter. And that's probably why. Not all recruiters do this, by the way. This is what I'm changing my stance on. I used to think like, sure, go for it. Now that we've implemented an ATS and I see, it's like, oh, no, these jobs are like, sure, they're both marketing jobs, 
and there's like a pretty big comp difference between the two and you applied to both. It's like, I'm just kind of confused about what you want. And it feels to me like you're confused and I want someone who knows the job they want. And so it's, yeah, it's just not like a positive mental exercise to go through when you're evaluating like, oh, I'm, I'm confused in the presence of confusion. I'm just going to pass. Right. It's kind of, it's like dating, right? If, if you're very clear about what you're looking for, let's say you're putting it on your Bumble profile, for example, and you go on a date with someone and you ask them, oh, so what are you looking for? And they're like, well, you know, I just want to see what happens. And eh, that person's going to be a colossal waste of your time. If they're not a match for what you're looking for as well, move on. <laughs> Cause it's either they're confused or they're not actually going to tell you what they really want because they're trying to dupe you into whatever it is that, you know, they think you want. And I think that that also applies to candidates as well. So when you're doing that initial pass, like where is your eye like tracking to? Like what's the order of operations of like, I look at this, I look at this, I look at this, and then I go here, decision. I look at location, education, years of work experience, skills. So I'm scanning through the con the meat of the of the resume the experience part if they have a separate skills section i'll look at that just to see like let's say i need someone who has experience with c plus plus because i'm working with some old school tech all right c plus plus great okay let me go back into the resume and let me find where they actually leverage that within their experience and now if i was hiring a new graduate obviously like that's going to be a little bit different but that's for like junior to mid-tier I like a skill section as like a reader of resumes. Now, I do exactly what you do. Like on its own, it's not that interesting. But then I'm like looking for it in context. I'm like, okay, cool. How'd you use it? But I like that it gives me a quick like, okay, cool. They have this ability. Like it checks the box. But yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. I know some people think they're stupid. I definitely think like the ratings are really not helpful. But like I'm all for just like, a comma separated list of words. I love it. Thank you. Super easy. Yeah. I talked to someone the other day because they had like languages and there were these little circles and I go, what does that even mean? Where's the key to this? And they go, uh, I go remove it or like you actually don't need that section for your job. So let's just remove that altogether. So skill sections, I think are important, especially for technical positions. I'm kind of like you, like you, or I'm like, well, like, they need to be on there. But if again, I think it just, it depends on the position because sometimes I'll see in skills like good communicator. Oh, sure. Those are soft skills. Yeah. I like hard skills in a skill section. Soft skills are like, they're kind of like almost like a rating. They're so subjective and like the interpretation is complicated. So it's like, I know amplitude. I know SEMrush. I know hrefs. It's like, okay, cool. You know how to use this software that we use. I don't have to train you. Yeah. The other things, less so. Right. And so for me as a recruiter, I'll list the applicant tracking systems I have experience with and okay, you know, Google suite or Microsoft office or whatever it is. But I also want to see that reflected in your experience as well. That is very helpful for me too. But, and you know, I think the other thing too, that people forget is that um, what I've seen a lot of, especially when people are newer to the job search, let's say they worked at a company for 10 years, got laid off and they go, Oh no, I need a resume. The resume is not a to-do list. It is results driven and focused. And I'm going to give a tip that I rarely give, but I really like your podcast. I'm going to give it. If you want to understand, like this is corporate speak. This is a skill set that people need to learn. And one of the quickest ways for you as a candidate to really understand what a business is looking for, go find a company's public earnings report. Apple has a very well-written earnings report. They have a very data-heavy one, and then they have another one that's a high-level one. Go read the high-level one. Read how it's written and look at the... And because they're, they're showing the business results. These are the outcomes of the work that was done in the previous quarter. That is the type of language you want to have in your resume as well. As a candidate, you're being hired by a company to make them money. So you're either there to make the money through being more efficient, to removing blockages or barriers. It's all about making money. That's what it is. It's a topic I like to talk about is how do we depersonalize the job search? Because I get it. It's inherently personal. It feels right. We cannot decouple like who we are as our like identity and this position, this job title that we feel like we're being passed on. 
I mean, it is emotional, but at the end of the day, I feel like it's actually far more transactional than people realize. Like the person on the other side is like one, very selfishly, are you accretive to my career? Is hiring you going to help me be more successful? And the inverse, like is hiring you going to get me fired? Because I'm essentially putting my identity and I'd say that's even more powerful. It's like, are you a risk to my career? Like, do I feel like you're going to come in here and mess something up potentially. Like it just doesn't, I say this a lot, it just does not really behoove people on the hiring side to be risky. The risk reward, I think like founders and like the entrepreneurs and like the leaders of the companies have a little more leeway because like their risk of losing their job is not as high. They could still do it, they could tank the company. But I think like the lower you get to hiring managers, it becomes quite existential. It's like, and the risk reward is just not there. Like if you put up a massive goose egg, that's my department, I might lose my job too. Right. And if you if you come in there like a bull in a china shop into your interview and you start acting like a startup CEO and you're going to be blah, 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 you are not the kind of person that person's going to hire because they want someone who will assimilate and culturally be a fit within the team. So you're just the missing puzzle piece that needs to fit into the rest of the puzzle. I totally agree with you on that one. The other thing I tell people is, which is a really hard one for them to understand, is you need to decouple like what you'll do once you get there and how you present your value in the interview, right? Because I see this a lot with generalists, right? They think that they can say, I can do anything. Like, don't worry, I'm a Jack or Jill of all trades. And that's actually, like, you do that after you get there. In the interview and in, in the whole job search process, they have a problem, we got a puzzle with a missing piece. You need to be that piece. Like everything about the interview and the pitch is like, I'm the problem. I'm the solution to your problem. I'm the solution to your problem. And then once you get in, knock it out of the park. Be a go-getter. Raise your hand to help with other things. But don't do that in the interview process. I'll never forget this. When I, I used to work for my dad and I used to run estimating for him. And I thought it was so easy to just hire this one contractor that was a plumber and an AC company. I was like, look, I don't have to get two vendors. He goes, they probably suck at both. And I don't think he was necessarily right, but it's just like, yeah, you can't be good at everything and I need someone and someone else is going to position themselves as a specialist. So that's why I always tell people like in the job search process, pick your one or two things and just show that you're awesome at those. And leverage your recruiter as much as you possibly can. I do know, and I acknowledge there are some really awful recruiters out there that will ghost candidates because they're too busy and they just, they should give you more of their time. But when you are in the interview process, you need to be drilling into the recruiter and asking all sorts of questions. And if you're not, you are doing yourself a disservice. You have the ear of the recruiter. Take that ear and get as much of that information out of them as possible, including, hey, why are they back? You know, is this role a new position? Are they backfilling this role? If it is a new role, why is it a new role? What is going on over there that they needed to hire a new person? And then, like you said, Dave, figure out, you'll figure out what the problem is that they need solving. And that should be the basis of how you prepare for your interview. And your interview answers should be tailored around what problem they're trying to solve. And you can only do that if you ask the recruiter. So we're running out of time. I have so many things. We're going to have to do a second one uh, if you're if you're game. I'm totally game. This has been fun. We'll ignore outbound for now. If you want like good LinkedIn tips, check out. Farah's TikTok. But there was one topic that you, you've you gone deep on on your TikTok a couple times that I wanted to talk about. And I think it's a good segue to what we were just talking about is the questions people ask in an interview. I think a lot of people think it's a sort of check the box. And this is a tricky one because people are solving for a lot of things. Like I want to evaluate, like, do I want to work there? So you are interviewing as a candidate, interviewing the company, but I'm sort of Ultimately, the company can decide to extend the offer. Then this is especially if you apply it online. I think if you're being recruited, the dynamics of buying and selling posture are a little different. So let's just say if you apply to a company and you're interviewing, you are in the selling posture versus the buying posture and and sort of evaluating. People, I see them just ask these really awful check the box questions that, you know, things that you could like Google, you could find out later. You know, and so it's like, you should really be thinking about like, how do I move this process forward? How do I go to the next step? And because you could always also pull out of the process. I feel a lot of people like, 
put too much pressure on like having the information early. It's like, look, unless you have zero time left, just focus on moving it forward. The worst case scenario, you're going to get practice and you can, you can just decline the offer, get the offer. You can decline it. Then it's like all in your hands. So you talk about this on your TikTok, but like, what are you, what are you looking for in like good questions? Questions are like, okay, that's interesting. If the candidate actually did their research on the company and looked at what was going on in the news. So look at what's, you know, do that research, look at what's going on in the news and reverse engineer some of those problems that they're having or saying, hey, you know, I, I heard that such and such is, or this thing that you're working on is coming out. Can you tell me more about that and how your team contributes to solving that problem? Right, get the, get the hiring manager to talk about their team, what's going on with them. And, and like you said, Dave, I think, I feel like I could like go on and on about the bad questions they asked. They're like, tell me about the vacation policy. That's why I didn't ask that one. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I mean, there are some thoughtful questions. Like if you have a lot of extra time at the end, you know, it's fine to ask the hiring manager, like, why do you, do you enjoy your work? What is it about, you know, working here that, that, you know, you enjoy the most. And I think it also depends on who you're asking of. Hiring manager versus interviewers. There's different stakes for table stakes for both. I think candidates are really afraid of asking tough questions. And I will tell you a question that I ask, and I do not recommend this to everybody. I do not. So I'm putting the disclaimer and disclosure out there right now. As a recruiter, it is my job to be comfortable in ambiguity and asking tough questions. So I ask tough questions. The question I ask in my interviews, because usually the people interviewing me are also other recruiters. I'll ask them. First, I I set it up and I say, you know, when I worked in finance, I would meet with clients and, you know, most of the time they only wanted to hear about the positives of a portfolio, you know, when we're doing like calculations and so on. But I always made sure to emphasize the downside risk that is involved with the investment so that they have a full understanding of what they're getting themselves into. So can you please give me three reasons as to why I should not work here? And I pause and I wait and I wait for a reaction. And the reaction tells me everything. Usually what happens is the interviewer gets incredibly uncomfortable. They take a they seat, they go back in their chair and they, they go, no one's ever asked me that before. And I just smile and I go, hmm. and I wait, I'm very patient. And then they'll give me their reasons. And that is very telling. So if you can craft a question like that, not quite as bold as that, you know, but that, that's the, that is literally the question that I ask in my interviews. So I also think that all job search advice, it depends what in your sequence of questions, where does that question land? I ask it as the first one. That's your first question? Oh, I'm glad I didn't frame my question. I was like, there's no way that's your first question, Uh, which is what I was about to say. Because as a recruiter, it ends up fostering additional conversations. Right, because it's a question that is embedded with representing your skills because you're applying for a recruiter position. Right. And as a recruiter, I'm a salesperson, but I don't sell software. I sell people to people to help solve business problems. So my role is to be a consultant. And as a consultant, I have to be able to demonstrate that I can go through a consultative process with them where I'm I'm finding facts, I'm looking at the issues, I'm determining their needs and what the actual motivators are from those people who are interviewing me. And do you then come with a follow-up that sort of makes that clear to them that that's what you were doing to not sort of leave it open to interpretation? Yeah. So I'll ask them, like, for example, I, I asked this question in an interview and they said compensation, you know, we don't pay the most out of, you know, all these other companies. And I'll say, you know, uh, compensation isn't necessarily a factor in a decision uh, for me, but there's other things that are also just as important as compensation, such as learning and development. Can you tell me more about some of the learning and development opportunities that you have here so that I can move around internally? Oh, that's interesting. All right. So that's a super bold one. I love that you gave the disclaimer. On the inter- on the re- interviewing side as a recruiter, what are some of the ones, do you have any that you can remember as like, well, that was a really great question. Or even that even like the manager said to you, wow, this person asked this really great question. To be honest, no. <laughs> they don't really, it's very, very rare. The The only times that I've been asked questions like that were people who had some inside knowledge. For example, in big tech, in hardware, it's a very small world. Apple, Tesla, 
and even Uber when they have their hardware teams, like all of these people kind of like know what's going on, right? So those people will usually have a baseline understanding. And here's one of the fun fact, when these people, these hardware engineers are working on their hardware, they're all going to Shenzhen in China and they all stay in the same hotels. They're all working in the same factories. No, literally, I had a candidate meet a hiring manager in Shenzhen for a job here in the U.S. because they were staying in the same hotel. So they had breakfast together. So it was a breakfast interview. But I would say, as a candidate, if you can ask your recruiter, what are some of the problems and the unique challenges that are that are happening that you can disclose to me? Because they won't be able to tell you everything, but they can give you some information. Craft your questions around those challenges those will stand out more because you were thoughtful enough to actually ask those questions. It's fine to ask generic questions if you want, but make sure if you do ask those generic questions, you have a follow-up to that based on the answer that's been given to you. So don't just leave it hanging there. Go and pick the cherry off the tree. That's low-hanging fruit. Right, kind of volley the ball to yourself. Right, and so asking questions around, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and how like if you're trying to think of like follow-up questions, oh, tell me more. How is that How is that possible? That sounds really interesting, you know? Yeah, and there's also like to like go read the room. So like the ones I like, you know, so right now Teal's very focused on the job search. So people will ask us like, look, what's kind of like the broader plan? Like you're focused on the job search that obviously has like inherent retention, would be curious to hear. Great question. Like that you understand where we are right now and like an opportunity slash weakness. Now, you're also interviewing with the CEO in the screening meeting. Like, what's the culture like? I'm like, what do you expect me to say? (laughs) I'm like, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. But like, honestly, you're really missing out on an opportunity to show like a thoughtful question when you're asking me like a crazy generico question to the person that's going to be like the biggest Kool-Aid drinker of of them all, you know? So it's like, what are you going to get from me? (laughs) Totally, exactly. And so I think kind of it's like, they, they need to have that foresight and you need to put yourself in that person's shoes. Put yourself in the interviewer's shoes. Put yourself in the hiring manager's shoes. What would you, And if you were hiring, what would you want to hear? What would convince you to hire that person? Like somebody who's giving generic answers, who's like very surface level or somebody who took the time to get to know you and the company and dove deep. That's the best advice. And I think people really like, I'll, I'll be working with folks who have hired before like a lot and they've interviewed before and they are like frozen. It's like, you've done this. Like you've evaluated, like you need to do like the out of body thing, like pull yourself out. And like, if you were, and so like, we're just so good at giving advice. I actually thought about like posting this on social somewhere being like, stop thinking about your job search and think about what advice you'd give yourself and how you might actually just entirely reframe because we're so good. If we looked at someone else, it's like, oh, fix this, fix this, fix this. Oh yeah, that's a terrible way to say something about yourself. And then people do it themselves and they don't follow their own advice. But we all do that. I think we're all really bad at following our own advice. Totally. I mean, I would say a good exercise would be if you were to hire a personal assistant for yourself and you had two candidates sitting in front of you and one of them just gave very generic, high level guidance and said or, or answers and said, Oh, I'm great. Yeah, I've done this before. All right. And then the second candidate goes, I have worked with this many clients. This, these are the tools that I that I use. This is how I keep things organized. And this is how I can make your life easier. Which person are you going to hire? The person who's like a to-do list or the one who's results focused? Kind of a no-brainer. Well, this is all. I have so many other things. I want to talk about tell me about yourself, but to spare people the time. If you're game, we'll do a second one. I'd love that. Actually, I'll, I'll give a tip about tell me about yourself. Or I'll, I'll give you a recruiter's thought process. I can tell within the first 10 seconds of an answer of tell me about yourself if this person's moving forward or not. Spicy. Yeah. So if, we bring, if you invite me back, then we can dive in. <laughs> that is a good cliffhanger. Let's leave it at that. I want to ask you so much about that. All right, we'll leave it at that. Tune in, follow, like. Farah, how can... There's probably really great content on your TikTok about that already. How can folks follow along with all the amazing insights you're putting out in the world? Yeah, so you can follow me on TikTok. It's my name, Farah Shargi. Same thing with Instagram. I am also working on more long-form content on my YouTube channel and, of course, on LinkedIn. But TikTok and Instagram are probably my two main platforms. And I also have my website, farahshargi.com, where I'm also um, writing a newsletter and I have some blog posts you can read, too. 
Amazing. We will link to all of those in the show notes. So absolutely follow along. Farah's meme game is quite strong as well. So if you want the occasional laugh, it's really good stuff. Well, Farah, this was awesome. Thank you so, so much. I'm super happy we got to chat and I can't wait to do the next one. Thank you. This was super fun. Thanks, Dave. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts. If you'd like to be a guest, we're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We want to give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.